0: Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode
1: number 30, and I'm Joshua Klein. I'm Mike Updegraff. We have uh, with us today a guest, our friend Nevin Carling. Uh, Nevin is an archeologist in training. Uh, he's attending the University of York, and that is not York in any of the United States. It's a different York. Um, the original. The original <laughs> York. <laughs> uh nevin is fascinated with hand tools and historic carpentry and uh he dropped by this morning uh to say hi and uh we asked him if he wanted to be on the podcast so good to have you nevin thank you for having me yeah this um, dude
0: is so fascinating yeah every my, time, my mind is spinning we were just talking every about a time he awesome comes
1: stuff. by we we start down some rabbit hole of of something he's researching or looking into <laughs> or working on and we're like oh man that is so cool um, so not to give too much away, but Nevin is writing an article for Issue 11, yep. um, and I won't give too much away. Oh, well, that's it, huh? It's awesome. You get. It's so fascinating. Um,
0: so yeah, we're really excited to have Nevin here today. Um, we have uh, a few things to, to update you on. We, uh, speaking of Issue 11 and having one of our authors here, we have Issue 11 uh, underway. Uh, our articles are in, we're working through them, uh, going... Uh, into design pretty soon here. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, storming along really well. Um, and then also the other uh, piece of news, I don't think we announced on our podcast. Yeah, I don't think we did yet. That our research grant, uh, we have selected our two recipients for 2021. Yeah. That was, uh, that was hard. There were a lot of people. To yeah, be so many good
1: uh, applications in. And I, I just, I do feel like any two would have, Led to really fascinating research. Um, the two we selected, though, um, they're just, you know, amazing and compelling uh, aims. Um, the first one was Agnes Chang, who is going to be traveling to Taiwan to research traditional Taiwanese plane making. Um, what I found really interesting about that tradition is that the the planes themselves are quite similar to Japanese planes, but they're used. Um, pushing like you would a Western plane, and they're used uh, standing at a, a typical like Western-height bench. Um, yeah. There are only about five five or so traditional Taiwanese plane makers left. And yeah. so she's going to go over there. Um, she has a, a good contact over there, someone who teaches at a woodworking school. And uh, they are going to travel around the country and uh, check out these plane makers and study their methods. And uh, she'll report back to us. Yeah. Um, then the the second recipient is Carrie Lambertson, who is a um, he's a fiddler, he's a violin maker, and he is fascinated with uh, with violins as kind of vernacular art. As the uh, you know, we we think of violins in this this um, you know very high s- style, like playing you know classical music and in, in concert halls and things like that. And um, very often the violin was a, a, a small town instrument you know they're sure. made from local woods by local craftspeople, And and um, carrie's really going to look into that so he's going to be traveling to cape breton uh, spending some time with some local um, makers of of these instruments and uh believe he's going to be making a vernacular violin himself, yeah
0: so. so yeah i was interested in that research because in my luthier training, it was just, I learned a very mechanized way to do that kind of work. So it's very precision oriented. A lot of it's pretty precise. Um, And so everything I was taught was, this is how you do this with a router jig. So I'm really fascinated to see how, I wasn't building violins, I was building guitars, but the same principles applies in terms of the, the small scale precision type of woodworking I'm really curious to see what, uh, what he
1: finds in that, in that research. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, one last thing before we get into our conversation, but we have new t-shirts that just showed up yesterday. Yeah. I happen to be wearing one of them. Uh, so these are the build forever shirts, uh, (laughs) quote from John Ruskin on the back. And, uh, we're going to do something different this time. We've never done before. I don't think we're going to do a t-shirt giveaway. Um, and the way that you can kind of sign up for it is we want you to leave an entertaining <laughs> review for this podcast on iTunes. We're not saying it has to be positive. We're, we're not it just saying has to be entertaining. it has to be entertaining. And we will pick the most entertaining <laughs> review and uh, get in touch with you, or we'll just uh, announce it or send an email out saying, "Hey, could this person get in touch with us?" And you'll get a T-shirt. So yeah. be thoughtful. Be entertaining.
0: Yeah, we get a lot of fun emails, so we thought and yeah. there are some really great uh iTunes reviews too. So we thought this would be great to just
1: encourage people to just you know, yes yeah. tell their
0: stories or you know, say interesting
1: stuff. So Yeah. Uh that'll be good. So free t shirt, that's the way to do it. Uh All right. so for our discussion, do you wanna Yeah, sure. We up?
0: were gonna uh we've been talking about uh tool epiphanies. Um, Just the other day, I was reading a book um, that was talking about, uh, well, it's actually talking about uh, nomenclature of different hand planes, but there was this uh, funny comment that I've heard several times. They said, yeah, it was interesting because uh, 18th century hand planes, uh, the tote or the handle was offset and uh, just a really bizarre thing. I don't know anything about it. Can't figure it out. Really weird though. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, that's so funny because I've heard that kind of thing a lot before. But um, that kind of, I, I feel like until you really pick that tool up and start using it, you can't, you could only guess what it might be. But once mm. once you pick it up and use it, you can start to get a, a concept of maybe this is some of the benefit to it. So, something especially that's such a widespread uh, phenomenon like offset totes, yeah. um, it wasn't for no reason, right? <laughs> obviously. And so uh, when you pick that tool up and you do this experimental archaeology approach where you begin to use the tool, that's the only time you can begin to say, huh, maybe it was for this reason. Or at least you can say, well, I've learned I like it for this reason or that reason. Um, So that's kind of what we want to talk about today is those some particular specific moments that we've had tool epiphanies, uh, times where we've been
1: uh, doing work and we said, oh, that's why that's how that works yeah so or an epiphany in the negative direction as nevin and i were talking about just like oh that is a really bad idea like the way everyone (laughs) says it was done this way uh that probably shouldn't happen (laughs) or Um, or we don't get it or we don't (laughs) get it yeah and so maybe some of our listeners can help us out with some of our say negative epiphanies help enlighten us as to uh how we should actually be going about these things uh so wooden planes that's a great place to start yeah right?
0: i i think uh we were talking about uh, wooden planes as sort of the obvious place to start just because that's what we go on and on about um and we've talked about four planes in particular um having a, a really uh, heavy camber and being able to take deep cuts really is a, a game changer hmm. uh and coming at it from a 20th or 21st century perspective where we're saying hand tools are really slow. Well, that's only true if there's no such thing as a four-plane. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And so that, uh, we feel like the symbol, the the icon of MNT is the foreplane because it really shows us that when we take these tools on their own terms, then we're able to start unlocking some of the, the mysteries and efficiencies uh, that these tools uh, always had. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, the fact that it's wooden, the wooden body is something that uh, we talk about, you know, the, um, the weightlessness of it, that, that it's lighter and that you don't need to lubricate the sole because it just glides across the surface. Um, those things are really important that were uh, epiphanies for me. They were revelations to say, um, moving from, uh, you know, uh, metal body planes, I have a handful of Stanley's and getting used to that and then switching over to a wooden version yeah. of that exact same plane is it holy smokes this is a totally yeah. different tool um, that to me that that little piece that we've talked about so many times is kind of yeah. we've noticed that in several different tools yeah uh, as
1: we've as we've gone on yeah and i think you know just as uh, you know other points that we've talked about just in adjusting wooden planes is so easy and intuitive, and the 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 common uh, mindset is that oh, it's just really difficult and really fussy and like you know tapping the wedges and deepening the cut and like well, how do you do it? What do you do? It just it it's not intuitive until you do it a couple times, and all of a sudden everything makes sense, and you can really dial in fine adjustments and everything like that. Um, so yeah, the wooden plane epiphanies led to greater epiphanies yeah sure um and the one that you know nevin can definitely speak to is uh the axe right right Uh, this is a tool for just splitting your firewood right
2: (laughs) yeah i think there's there's an axe for every person out there um that's the it's 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 amazing how many cultures um and 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 ethnic groups you know have the axe as the central tool for Mm. working i mean is the everything tool and there are certainly axes that can do everything but there are also axes that are really really specific Mm. yeah um one of the 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 ones that i've always had a, a tough time with until i finally you know figured out through trial and error and through actually using um, a French axe rather than an American axe, is the American broad axe.
1: Oh, yeah, um, yeah.
2: Which, um, you know, it's this huge thing on a short handle, and it seems like the further south you get, like in Pennsylvania, the, the bigger and heavier they are. Yeah. And you, you can't imagine anyone using these tools to do any sort of, like, you know, timber framing or finishing right. work. Um, it just seems too tiring and, 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 and too heavy. Um, yeah. But that is purely about the application. I, I think a lot of times when people think of the broad axe, it is the axe to go to after you finished joggling, after you've notched out your uh, your um, billets and hewing, which is not the case at all. Mm. It really is for taking down maybe that last eighth of yeah, an inch. Yeah, it's like a smoothing um, plane, it, right? it's, it's a smoothing yeah. plane. It's a precision tool. Okay. Right. Um, and it, it, so you it's wouldn't go from,
0: from joggling. to that
2: to that no you'd have to have you know you'd have your intermediary axe or if you're really good you know you have your one axe for joggling and then swinging off those joggles Mm. and then i usually you know for me it's a a three axe process i have an american felling axe which i use to do the joggling and knock the billets off pretty rough and then i come in with um heavier short handled axe double bevel and i and i take a lot of the material off down to that last 16th so mm. you, know, you get those scoops and swoops that you see on a lot of rough hewn beams right you know? but then the american finishing axe comes in and, and smooths it off and it, again it's like the smoothing plane yeah it's it, like the it, four trying and smoothing plane. exactly yeah. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's a three-part process <laughs> yeah. but it, it i when i went to france to 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 learn how to do french style timber framing they have these great big um socketed axes that i think they're called a Picardy, yeah, um, which they use exactly. I mean, you see these giant things on short handles, and you're like, oh, those are yeah. going to be for taking the, the, yeah. the, the meat That's for off the these big logs. Swings. That's for those big swings. When it, They're not at all. They're, 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 they only are most effective when you're taking off the smallest amount of material mm-hmm. possible. Yep. Um, and and it, it feels counterintuitive. Big X, big heavy thing, must be for taking off
1: lots of material,
2: but it's, it's not. It, yeah. it really is to get that Smooth finish
1: that. Um, it's a very small stroke that you're taking. Right, I mean, right. It's a very slight motion. Right. It, it's, it's really on like the wrists, forearms. yeah, forearms, and
2: or especially the big aha is 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 when you um, start to work a groove or a, a channel that oh, the right. axe can repeatedly fall into, and then it's like you're not even using your 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 uh, the greater motions of your wrists moving when you're hewing, but rather just letting that weight drop repeatedly into that channel until it comes off you know like a big sheet sort of big sheet yeah Yeah, Yeah. exactly which is the most satisfying yeah to chase that sheet of
1: of uh timber from one end to the other Hmm. um yeah i mean to me it over the past few years just the axe even like a bench axe or a hatchet and just how valuable that is in the shop for for stuff that you know i would often say oh i've got this bit to to remove like to um uh, to reduce the width of a board, well, that's that's you know not enough to rip. So I guess I'll just plane it, and you just stand and plane <laughs> for a minute, or you can take a hatchet and do it in eight seconds, and then take a couple passes with the plane, and you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, to so see,
0: those are two really different scales. They are. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we so we were building these um, boxes for the box sets, and the the bottom board we needed to trim. It's half-inch stock, pine, yep. and we need to trim a half of an inch. So talk about a difference mm-hmm. in scale from what you're talking yeah. about. It's yeah. like the far end of the spectrum. Um, but still, again, so we could say, okay, it's not that long. It's half-inch by half-inch of, of pine we need to remove. But the best way to do it is to, we we decided you, you could plane that off several, several, several passes of a 4 plane, or we took two steps to the stump mm-hmm. and Look at uh, where the grain is running out. Split off the bulk of it, and then hew down. So we're talking like ten seconds of work. Mm, yeah. Walk over, split, hew, and you're back to the bench. Um, and then you have one little pass with cleanup. You know, when you once it's all assembled, and that kind of thing. You know, um, really unlocked uh now i know why you would have a stump in a workshop because this isn't it's not like you're you're splitting the firewood to keep the place warm it's (laughs) actually what or for sitting on it (laughs) which i am doing right now yeah you are
1: yeah so right now recording this podcast uh nevin is sitting on a shaving horse joshua is sitting on a hewing stump and i've got this nice little like what is this like a 19th century little windsor stool Yeah. yeah so it's a very versatile shop furniture here
2: I think another another thing with using um, an axe in the in the wood shop um, that I found more helpful was actually using a heavier axe mm. with a short handle as well mm. um, rather than a lighter hatchet okay um, yeah I think Peter fawnsby talks about this a lot when he's uh, doing stock prep for his join chests is he's actually got this huge heavy bit English yeah. double bit axe that he's you know, taking off large chunks of material with. But the heavier the axe, the less time yeah. you're actually right. standing totally. at you're the, letting the stuff itself. It right, it. right, exactly. Yeah. It's kind yeah, it, of the same theory. And the
0: hatchet that I'm using for that half inch is quite heavy. That's I think it's three and, three, and three and a half. And a half or so. Or so. It's right. like absurdly heavy for what you're doing, you'd think. And I have these little tiny hatchets, but I find I got to swing harder. Right. Yeah. And I've had students, it's actually the same principle with uh, chopping mortises and using uh, a mallet for uh, chopping. Um, I've had some students feel like, oh, this is really heavy, so I want a lighter mallet. Use mm-hmm. one of those really
1: lightweight carving. Yeah, mallet. exactly. Right. They're
0: using, and I'm like, yeah, I'm telling you, you don't want to do you're that. And be- they do it, and they get really exhausted because they're just beating on it. Right. You have to. If you use a heavier tool, you it's a lot easier. You're, right. you're just picking it up and letting this
2: weight able come down. to transfer more energy in in, in less time and yeah. in a less large stroke. If that yeah. Makes sense.
1: Yeah. Totally. But in. Um, as um, Nevin was saying in, in timber framing, the uses of the axe are, it's just incredible. And um, one of the things we talk about a lot is how the, um, when CSF came and raised the, the blacksmith shop timber frame here, um, seeing you know what is possible to do with an axe was remarkable. Um, one of the framers, uh, Gustav Ramon, was cutting these perfect square uh, tenon shoulders with his, the, the same ax that he was using to hew, and that was actually the same yeah. ax he used to fell a few trees. I mean, it yeah, was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Which yes, um, you did hear that handle. right,
0: he's cutting the shoulders. Yeah, the shoulders, so 90 degree deck, to the yeah.
1: grain, cutting these nice, crisp, square shoulders, and cutting all the joinery um, with this ax. And w- I was just standing there watching that with my mouth hanging open, because I had never seen that before. Um, but it is it is uh, some remarkable revelations with that tool. Which yeah, is which, all you which to do is with it. funny
0: because so we had this sticker. I think it might be out of stock now, but maybe not. I don't know. Uh, it said "Kill your table saw." Right. I and, think we still have some of those. Oh, okay. We still have some in our store. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we had this sticker: "Kill your table saw," like you know, "Kill your television." Just being silly. Uh, but when they came, when the CSF came, uh, Gustav saw that sticker and he cut out. Table, table yeah and he said kill your saw yeah because he's like anti-saw saws like are, saws are modern modern technology. technology when i was
2: working with him in france it was just like you know very disparaging of the idea of using a panel saw yeah right <laughs> i've got everything i need right here right you know, here yeah he has freedom with his
1: axe except yeah, the
2: one saw that he does own is the most enormous like um f- frame saw that you'll ever see i mean the oh, blade's really? got to be like four feet long and it's this huge frame saw it's like about he can you can carve spoons of that man yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. <laughs>
1: that's uh, awesome yeah it's uh, so the axe definitely a tool full of revelations uh epiphanies i guess yeah uh so in in terms of uh maybe a, a negative epiphany <laughs> We, we talk about this tool often and we hold it up as an example of, you know, it's probably, maybe a safety issue. It's probably
0: our stupidity. I, I just could don't be. get it. Uh, Nevin, do you know what those English striking knives are? Have I've, you seen this? I've not seen this. No. Mike's going to go get it. Uh, so I just wrote about this on the blog recently. Um, I was writing about um, knives that you would use, like marking knives. Um, and so for transferring joinery. And there are different styles of knives today. People have, um, uh, when they make them, they have. Um, sometimes they have a, a right and a left, but the, the primary feature that they'll they'll highlight is that it's a, a single flat, and then so it's a single bevel, exactly, so that you can put this um, this flat up against the mating member to transfer the line. Um, but some of the older styles, um, there is this uh, English joiners' tradition, this. Um, this striking knife, which on one end is, um, has just a, a small double bevel blade that you would Looks use. It's kind of
1: like a skew chisel. It's
0: kind of like a skew chisel. But then instead of a wooden handle that you would hold onto, on the other end, it's an awl, a sharpened awl. And so there is no wooden handle, it's just a, a piece of steel, and one end is a, um, an awl, one end is a knife. And so that's really handy because it's like a two-in-one mm-hmm. yeah you know like that's you george
1: can, walker mentioned that yeah. he thinks of that as a coarse side and a fine Coarse side. and fine yeah, yeah that
0: makes sense to me i get that um and so i i saw this in i think it was smith's 1816 key um to sheffield tool making and there was a picture of one in there and i've seen these before i thought oh that'd be really interesting to try one of these historic tools and so um at an antique Uh, tool dealer booth I think I picked this this old striking knife up and was ready to I was excited about trying this out and to see how this was such a unique form and what all the mysteries it would unlock for me and the very first thing I did is I, uh, I brought it to my bench and I put the the knife blade down and I leaned over my work to watch my scribing and I realized my eyeball was like three inches from the all. Yeah, <laughs> End of it. I was like, "Stab Whoa! yourself in the face!" Because I'm concentrating on uh, I'm concentrating on my line that I'm trying to describe, and I'm leaning down
2: over, and I have an awl pointed right at my face. That reminds me a lot of like uh, a bisigue or uh, oh, the yeah, shorter yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, English style, big... the twy bills. For mortising, uh, while standing or sitting on the log, where you've got a blade that you're swinging back toward right, your, your head yep. to cut the mortise out. Yeah, because there's a blade um, on both ends. Yeah. Yes, yeah. there's a blade, there's a there's like a mortising blade on both ends, and then there's a paring blade on the other end. And, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, having... Done it a couple of times. You have to sit, you know, at an angle away, just hoping that you're not at least with the uh not going to right because you you've got to swing swings. that vertically to right. chop those mortises. Oh. So the other thing with the like the bizigue as well is you've you've got the um, mortising. Oh, uh, you know, you, you it, it's the same thing where you've got a pairing blade. Quick,
0: quick, explain that for our listeners what a bizigue is.
2: A bizigue is a is a medieval um, and they also
0: have probably seen it written maybe but haven't heard right. It pronounced
2: right. <laughs> um, Yeah, how do you i can't even spell it now it's Uh,
0: b-e-s-s-a-u-g-u-e or something close to that
2: right something to that effect it's um it's it's made for your body but they tend to be five or six feet long a steel bar with a a handle on the side at about the midpoint with a pairing chisel on one end and a mortising chisel on the other end Mm -hmm. and it's for carving out mortises while standing above the work, if the mm. work was on the ground, and it's yeah. traditional in France and in uh, medieval England um, timber framing traditions. Um, but if you've got one that's not really set up for your body, especially with that you know steep mortising chisel, and it's riding up near your armpit and your shoulder, oh, one wrong slip, and suddenly you're bearing your whole weight down on this um, this this chisel into your you know in the inside of your armpit. I bet um, there are some veins in there. I yeah, bet there is couple, some stuff in there Something you don't important want to hit is in there. with an edge <laughs> right. I see a lot of them are dulled on that end. So they're just used for paring out yeah. the sides of the mortise walls. So oh, no one's, you man. know, really coming down the end grain with um, it. You
0: put like a, an eraser end on <laughs> right, yeah, it. Right, cap right, right, like a cap. <laughs> Whoa. So, yeah, I mean, I am sure that there's a listener out there who's like, oh, these guys are idiots. Striking yeah. knives are like it. Yeah. And he just doesn't yeah. use, use it. Knees. I just I've just had a few situations that I felt like oh wow I that didn't think about it was actually another really stupid situation that I should have known better but just wasn't thinking the first time I was hewing out a bowl with a bowl ads mm-hmm. I, I first time I got my own ads and I was hollowing and I had my, in my it was in my right hand and so I'd take some chips and I'd use my left hand and fling out the chips and. Swing down in again. I took my left hand and pulled the chips. And really I was getting faster deep. and faster. Oh and then I started realizing, wait a minute. Like this blade I'm swinging down with my other hand is getting, is pretty pretty quick right after my yeah. fingers are leaving. Yeah. What the heck am I doing? <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was just a uh, user error, obviously. But things like that with the striking knife and whatever, I just think, you know, I don't know why I need a knife and an all in one tool. Yeah, like I,
1: I, I have an all, and, and, and I have a knife. The and tool they're... guarantees that one of those is always aimed at you. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's so, the nice
2: thing about the race knife is like you've got all the tools, but on one end. Yeah. Rather. Yeah. yeah.
1: Going in one direction, not aimed so, at
0: your body or so your face. So I, I had, I was really setting myself up for this big revelation. I was going to say this striking knife is it. I was ready to get excited about it, and I got scared. And it's lived in my tool chest ever yeah. since. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. We pull it out to talk about it, and then we'll put it back in. So sad. Um. So yeah. Uh. Actually, getting back to planes a little bit, or an aspect of planes, right? We were talking about the offset tote. Yeah. Earlier. Yep. Yeah. And and just your. I remember when you were talking about how you found just uh, the setting the hand off to the side and the pinky down and the different grip and things like that. It totally changed the way that you held that tool. Yeah. but. um,
0: Well, so when I was researching um, Jonathan Fisher's uh, furniture making and he had his tools there, um, it was actually, long story short, before I even saw the planes in this other collection, um, I hadn't yet been able to see them, there was this funny little wooden pattern that it was... I can't even really describe the shape, um, but it was this ball on one end and a little point, and then it had this little swoop curl. And I just kept... It was a pattern for something, and I kept holding it up to different things in the house, and I just couldn't figure out what that was for Um, until I walked in to see all of the planes there, and I realized, oh, this is a pattern for his plane tote. And if you've ever seen... If you're into antique tools... Uh, collecting, um, there's a style of, of tote that's called a, collectors call it um, a Mickey Mouse tote because on the top it has this round ear, it looks like. And I, to my knowledge, it's merely, uh, decorative to have that round ear, but, um, but it's this really funny shape that I didn't recognize before. Um, so that was funny. The, the shape of it was bizarre to me. And then his planes had this offset tote. To to the far side of the plane. So I'm right handed, so it was was on the right side, it was far away. And I asked so many people about, and this was common in the 18th century um, for this to be done. And I asked so many people about, you know, why was it like this? And these particular uh, examples that I was looking at, you know, these are in this museum collection, so I couldn't, you know, put an edge on them and put them to use. Mm. So I couldn't speak to why, what would be the benefit of that? I had a few people, you know, throw me some guesses, but, um, but they hadn't themselves used the, the tote look that way. So I had an old uh, wooden four-plane body that was, uh, the tote was broken on it and needed to be replaced anyways. And so I copied, I made a copy of the tote uh, using the pattern from uh, Fisher's, uh, for, from his uh, pattern. And I mortised it uh, offset into the body and I started trying it. And it was interesting because as I started uh, using it first of all the the shape of the tote is really um, wide front to back so if you th- if you think of the 19th century totes where they're kind of circular you can put all your your fingers wrapping you it all the four way around, fingers or, around one four of fingers yeah. all around and you can wrap it it's like a You're hammer like, handle you know like white you can, knuckling it too yeah totally right so you can hold on to it white knuckling all the way around and that's how I started trying to hold this and I thought this thing, I looked at Fisher's planes and thought that looks so uncomfortable. How yeah. the heck would you? He must you have hold had it tiny like fingers. Yeah, must yeah. have had tiny hands. And um, then I so I started trying to hold it and figure out like where do you even put your fingers? With such a weird, it was flat. <clears throat> it was flat and wide and short. Right. It's just so weird. Um, but then so I started trying to find a comfortable position with this, and. Instantly, oh, you know, I mean, within a few minutes of trying to mess with it, I found my hand shifting downward, and I only had my my two middle fingers of the four others wrapping around the toad itself in the front, and my pointer finger was pointed forward, and my pinky had slipped down on the side of the body, um, the side of the stock of the plane, and I found that was the comfortable position. And as soon as I did that. Thing, like things started clicking in my head that now my hand, I've lowered the center of gravity and I'm, my hand is running along the side of the plane. So I have a lot more uh, grip and feel and so before in a centered uh, 19th century tote um, that's with that other shape, I was, up, I was in the center, up high with all four fingers and so I, it was, the tool was completely below my hand. Yep. But with this tote, my hand came down onto the side of the tool and it functionally was much more an extension of my arm. It became right. extending from my grip and I found it just totally unlocked uh, the, the use of that tool. And then the, the flat, uh, the, the wide, flat uh, nature of the tote also made it so that I, as my fingers were wrapped around it, um, it was in it was in line with the length of the plane, so I could steer the plane side to side. I could feel it. It's like an oval mortise uh, ha- uh, chisel handle. Right. That when it's oval, you can feel the orientation. It's the same kind of, sort of principle. You wouldn't want a, a round mortise uh, yeah, chisel exactly. handle because you, you're always you're gonna you have to look at it and just depend on your eyes to sight. Is this square? Is it twisted? Um, so when that kind of thing is built into the tool. It just becomes part of your body you don't have to
1: look anymore you can feel it Mm -hmm. yeah and the 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 rotational aspect of that too i mean it's like if you're gripping with four fingers one of these upright totes um you know you're basically your hand is a bushing and the, the tote is is the axle and and you can turn it and rotate it and it's it's kind of floppy in your hand but when you're just locked in down and on the side with it um you really have more control.
2: I imagine it also brings your shoulder down a little bit, so when you're yeah. not planing with your um, the muscles around your collarbone, but more more your your um, the front of your body as well. Yeah. Right. So you can you use can get more behind mass, it, yeah. right, rather yeah. than just your arm and, and, and the kind of lever action. Yeah. Um, in that, I also had a question because I haven't used. I, I have a couple offset toe planes, but I haven't fixed them up. You know, mm-hmm. It's another project to <laughs> yeah. so get done eventually. Um, but I wonder. You know, because your, your hands lower down and your, your pinky um, is riding on the side of it, does it also slightly skew the plane um, rather than being um, parallel with the grain that you're pushing slightly at an angle that might help take plane shavings off in that way?
0: Uh, that's interesting. Uh, does it naturally fall that I- way or... Uh, I don't know because I often do choose to skew the plane a little bit, anyways. Right. So I'm not sure if, um, and I was doing that before I used this style of tote. Um, so I, but I did actually find also, this is a little bit unrelated to what you're saying, but um, part of it was on those totes, it, um, the, the 19th century totes, I would use them and I, when I really want to put some muscle into it and make a nice big heavy cut, I would just subconsciously put my hand on the back of the plane down Mm -hmm. behind Mm. on the heel and push because I I knew I needed to get down lower and get, Mm -hmm. you know, get more muscle behind that. And this is that same direction. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I don't know if it it forces it naturally, but I do naturally skew a little bit almost every time. Um, but it's also, it also reminds me of the dutch planes have you seen those dutch planes yeah, and their totes? Yeah, yeah. they're even smaller than this right. it's like you can only fit one little finger it's really like <laughs> it's riding a little in the hole. the, the,
2: the crook of your uh, between your thumb and your your pointer finger exactly yeah. it's so the
0: your three lower fingers smaller fingers are on the side of the plane like yeah. it's, it's on the side and what i found with with woodworking um, that um, you're sort of it's It's a person interacting with a piece of wood, and the medium is the tool. And so if you can feel the um, vibrations transferring through the tool, you're going to be that much better off. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons, another reason I like wooden planes. But when you're on the side of the plane, you're feeling all of those vibrations. But the further removed you are from that cutting action, the less information um, your your body's receiving Mm -hmm. from what's actually going on. So that's a lot to yeah to pull out of like just this funny shaped tote right um but that was one for me that i just went oh my goodness this is a game changer yeah really for me it is um so
1: yeah so now you're an offset tote guy it's not just the wooden planes it's no. got to be the the offset tote It's yeah, the it purest has to be. center of the <laughs> right <laughs> right nice once you go back you can't yeah you know, there's no once you've seen in the time, light yeah, yeah, yeah you
0: can't go back you get used to it
1: uh, okay, so here's one that, uh, a, a subject sacred to many a, a hand tool woodworker. Oh boy, are maybe. we going to get in trouble? Uh, <laughs> who knows? Uh, maybe they'll leave a creative comment over on iTunes. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about hold fasts. Hold fasts. Yep. So everyone who's a hand tool woodworker needs to have a bench with hold fasts, right?
0: Yeah. Because that, that's, well, that's, that's just... I would say that, that has been true in the past... Um, you know ten years or whatever people yeah. it's these these things have like yeah like blown our minds awesome yeah, around. yeah yeah,
1: how great hold fasts are um so a question that we ask sometimes or we've thought of and we've we've asked others, no one really seems to know the answer to is where are all the old hold fasts like if every woodworker needed at least a few of them, right, and at least a pair at yeah. least a pair um. Why is it have have you ever seen one in
0: the wild? I have never I've been all my tools are antique tools almost except the ones I've made. I there are I can't think of an exception. Um I have never once seen a holdfast at an antique store. Mm-hmm.
2: I, have you ever seen one? I've never seen a holdfast. I've seen old um planning stops and I've seen mm-hmm. just at the tool barn the other day, I saw a couple of bench dogs. Yeah. Uh, bench staples that I yeah. picked up for a, a nice price <laughs> um but never a hold fast yeah, yeah. so
1: so that's had us this wondering, is like, a question wait a minute this is a conundrum like you
0: keep tripping over when you go searching for antique tools you trip over wooden planes of every shape and size and every kind of yep. saw and every hammerhead every, it's just like stuff is all over the place and i've never once yep. seen a whole fast yep
1: and so so let's, okay, you can't draw any, any information mm-hmm. or inferences from an absence of, of information or evidence. But let's talk about like old benches mm-hmm. that we have looked at or seen. So you're talking about Jonathan Fisher, Yep. His so, benches.
0: Yeah, so I was looking at, he has a, a small English joiner style bench, very small, that still survives. Probably the primary bench he used uh, was in his workshop building, which no longer exists so it was probably a built-in bench, um, and that's why so I don't have access to that. Um, but so there's that smaller bench, um, and then there's also mm-hmm. um, uh, like a – it's it's often called a Roman uh, bench or like this long-staked saw bench kind of thing. Um, and it has holes for wooden pegs mm-hmm. for sure, um, small, small holes. I think it's like eighths inch diameter holes, and there's no – um, wearing of them at all. There's no right. holdfast that you know. It's a it's a pine or softwood top, so the holes are not worn at all. You just yeah. set a peg in there.
1: So, and Fisher like most of his tools remain. Yeah, no hold fast. a lot of
0: his a lot of his tools remain, and um, there was no holdfast in his uh, probate inventory. Um, and I th- first I thought, okay, well maybe you know it was just still in the bench, and the bench went down with the 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 building when it was taken right. down um that's of course possible
1: yeah but okay he's just a local example right in this little mm-hmm. community out here um so how about examples like the the dominey bench or uh Nicholson? what did he say about holdfast yeah his
0: book? well i mean so th- those are two different situations you have in um when you look at uh i went to the winterthur museum to study the dominey workbenches um, and tools, and the w- one primary 12-foot-long red oak workbench is um, described rightfully as a French-style workbench. Mm. It's a big, massive slab top and um, big, uh, heavy timber legs. And so it, you would look at the drawing of Roubault's bench and yep. say, oh, yeah, that's pretty much a Roubault bench. What's interesting about that one is there are no hold-fast holes. Hmm. Uh, Roubault shows that. Um, and this one, uh, these guys were in uh, Long Island uh, doing their work. And there there are no holdfast holes at all. There is a holdfast that exists. They do have a holdfast there. And there's another bench that has one hole in it that is too big for that holdfast. Much hmm. too big for it. And I don't know how that works. I don't know. Like, right. you, you could not use it in that hole. It's way too big. Um, but it looks like... You would stand back and go, "Oh, there's the holdfast hole," and you slide in and you go, "Oh, it's like not, not, it. not even, it's not going to work." So I don't know. They had a holdfast, um, but their their primary big massive bench, zero hold fast holes, uh, so they were not using that bench for, with that. They were not using that kind of work holding on that bench. Hmm. Um, but then, do you want to talk about the Nicholson stuff when we were building these benches?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, we had the intention right with, with these benches when we we're putting together of, of putting hold fast holes and everything in the tops and um, in the, the aprons or the rails, because that's, that's kind of what you do. That's what's seen. Um, in terms of, of building the benches. Well, so
0: we, when we were looking at Peter Nicholson's description, he does not have any hold fast holes in his bench top. Right. Yeah. Um, you, ha- you see, if you've seen the um, zigzag pattern of holes in the front, that's for a wooden peg. Right, that support. supports the edge of the yep. board so you can do edge planing. Um, so that's not for hold fast. And then you look at the top and say, okay, so what, what's the whole hold holdfast hole pattern here? Right. No. There isn't one. There is no, no hold fast. He has a stop
1: <laughs> on yeah. the
0: top of his bench. Yeah, mm-hmm. he has one little bench hook uh, that he says sometimes you, you have teeth on it to bite into the end of the stock, And sometimes it's just, um, just a fixed block. Um, but that's it. Yeah. And so that made us think, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, I thought these, like, Holdfast, I will say right now, they are amazing. Yeah. They're They're really awesome. They're useful. And, I mean, going from, you know, before I knew about Holdfast, trying to use um, clamps and vices Mm. to try to hold Mm -hmm. stuff down, it was, like, such a bear, especially, Mm. like, a tail vise. I mean, if you're trying to plane a board and you put it in a tail vise, it's just that much... um, that much more work of turning the screw this, loosening yeah. it up, adjust it. Potentially
1: bowing it a little and then planing that bow out, and right. then you have a... Yeah. It's cupped Yeah. Yeah, so
0: hold fast for me, where it was so cool. You slide it in the hole, hit it, and the whole thing's locked, hit the back, and it pops free. It's yeah. the fastest clamp you could come up with. It's right. awesome.
2: I've got an interesting thing. I was reading a paper um, by Tamir Tatlioglu, who is a British archaeologist, and he wrote... Um, uh, a very interesting paper about the joiner's shop at the Harwood Estate in Leeds, which is an 18th century uh, joiner, uh, joinery shop that serviced the entire estate. And it's a great paper about um, both the building of the building by the masons who were employed by the Harwoods, but also the joiners who inhabited it, and how um, there was definitely a dialogue between the joiners and the masons in the building of the building, Um, To suit the needs of the joiners and Mm -hmm. a really interesting thing was that above Where um, the workbench stations were likely because there are these flagstones that actually separated the the shop Okay, so you can envision that you know on these flagstones were likely the placement of the workbenches, but also another thing that um, You know um, Helped with that hypothesis was that there are these cubbies that were um, inset into the foundation um, wall or of the wall um, that abutted the benches at bench height, you know, just sure. above where oh, typically wow. yeah. you would be at bench height. Um, and these are not in the original drawings, and these are probably additions that were added. You know, the head joiner went up to the head mason and said, Hey, you know, can you do this when yeah, you're you're building this? this? You're building. And you know, I, I contend a little bit with the interpretation that um, Mr. Tatlioglu gives, which was, you know, oh, those are cubbies to put the tools because they're stone cubbies. Yeah. I would not <laughs> want to put my edge tools yeah, in, in a, a stone, stone cubby, cubby. Or, or, you know, I guess you could put boards of wood on all sides of it to, right, to protect it your in. tools, but then it would be very shallow. You know, yeah. they're not very big cubbies. Okay. And it occurred to me, those are for holdfasts. You know just those must be throw them in you there. Know, just throw them in there you know yeah, yeah. your metal you're not going to chip them or anything right that you're, is you're not going to do anything that is a you bench accessory that
1: little you don't care about right. dinging the edge
2: you have this little cubby i mean they're no probably no more than you know maybe 12 feet long by eight inches tall yeah by you know eight inches deep wow. um so it was built into the fabric of this building
1: yeah, yeah, right at um, bench height. Level. Right at bench
2: height, so that you know all these joiners who were a lot of it was sash and a lot of it was was finishing work for the inside of the estate and the estate grounds. Yeah. Um, but of course, when you're doing long sash like that, you're gonna want to just grab a hold fast, hammer it down, and then go straight to planing. Yeah. Uh, all your board stock down.
1: I wonder how deep those bench tops were because that's another interesting thing that we, we talked about when, when building these benches, like how deep do we want them? And, you know, it was always thinking about clearance from the front of the bench to where your your plane might impact the wall or mm. this nailer here, yep. uh, just in terms of would that give them some extra clearance somehow or, you know, what the consideration was. Right. With that. But that is really interesting that the masons were working to some certain design elements of the joiners, in that shop, around their benches, right, where right they which, needed that which space. tells you
2: that most likely, especially at this time in the 18th century, the mid 18th century into the latter half of the 18th century, they're not using vices. They're, you know, right, pretty much predominantly in English workshops using holdfasts mm. and planning stops. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that's, I mean, I think that's what we were um, fascinated with trying to figure out, you know, where were these things used and um, what is the tradition coming from? Because uh, Fisher, there's no mention of it. Dominey's, um, they had a Holdfast, uh, but they weren't using it on their primary bench. Um, and then Peter Nicholson doesn't talk about hold fast and doesn't have any Holdfast holds in his uh, joiner's bench. And so we were trying to figure out, like, how do you, what's going on here? It's not so much, um, are they uh, useful and great, because we think they are, but the question is, well, if you didn't, if you weren't using them, how do you even approach? the work like is there right. something what to is this the work tradition holding solution yeah what what is the work holding solution and so it is interesting because we built these benches and um we we built them without any hold fast holes and we uh wanted to see what it would be like uh well basically we just started working that's what we did it wasn't even intentional we just started working and uh we said we'll put the hold fast holes where we need them when we decide. Okay, here's an occasion that we're going to be doing this operation a lot, and so we decided we'll let this sort of organically evolve, and yeah. the whole the holes uh, spacing will be there. Um, and it was I don't know a couple of years before we put the first hole in.
1: Yeah, and there's there's still just one. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, two. <laughs> uh, there's the yeah two there might they be go, another go work together just for the the occasional task that. And-
0: and I think the thing for me is it was basically like a further uh, evolution from going from having um, a, a tail vise to clamps. Hey, Grace is Grace here. Grace is here too.
1: Hey. Yeah. Hey, we're we're doing a podcast, Grace. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> hey, our shirts arrived. Sweet. Yeah. I can't yeah. We're, get to see them. we're gonna give somebody a, a free T-shirt. Oh. Cool Someone on. listening to the podcast. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Okay. We're almost done.
0: All right. So what was I saying? Oh, i was saying
1: hold fast holes uh,
0: so we were saying basically it was an evolution for me going from uh, no tail vise and no clamps to um, to just having hold fasts and how fast they were to uh, tighten to fasten and remove to to realizing wait a minute if i didn't have a hold fast hole and it's going to take me Five minutes to go dig that bit up and And bore bore this hole and then, okay, this is where I want it. And maybe it's not actually this spot, but it's the wrong spot. You know what I'm just going to do? I'm just going to, you know, maybe place one end of the workpiece into my chest and the other up against my bench hook. Mm, Just secure it. And then I'm going to make that cut or mark. And I started doing that a lot. I started realizing, I don't even want to pick up the hold fast anymore because I don't want to lock anything down ever. Yeah. Right. And that's sort of like with the bench hook, like this this planing stop, that's what's so great about that is it's never locked down. It's only ever locked in one direction. When you're planing, it's against the stop. Mm-hmm. And you can just pick it up and flip it and set it back down and plane again. So it's only holding it in, in that one direction you need it, but it's not locked down at all. Um, and so f- for me, I've really... Um, I, there are a few uh, operations like um, cutting rabbits. Um, you know, when you want that uh, horizontal and to be able to cut the rabbit, you, you, you got to lock it down yeah. horizontally to the workbench top somehow. Yeah. Um, uh, th- well, at least that's a m- much more efficient way to do it. Um, but besides that, I really don't use hold fast because I don't want to spend the time to lock my board down. Right. <laughs> I want to be able to adjust.
1: Yeah. all All time. And so, yeah. So talking about the, um, the 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 bench hook, right? So that's that's was that um, Moxon's term? Or was that Nicholson who both they both call what what is typically called a planing stop? They called it a bench hook because it looks like a hook. I yeah. mean, it's a hook in your bench.
0: Yeah. Today, people uh, talk about planing stops, and they describe bench hooks as. Um,
2: something you said in the vice right yeah well, like a this star. is this West. is a bench hook oh right yeah
0: so yeah it's um i'm trying to like so basically it has a little clip on the end it's three pieces of wood um or carved from one solid and so it's you can uh cross cut uh easily with this up against the front of the workbench um so if you just look up woodworking you know uh Bench. Hook. bench hook. I keep forgetting what people call them. I always yeah. called it what Nicholson calls it. Yeah. Um, But uh, he calls them side hooks is what he calls them. Um, and it seems like it's a total universal thing um, that, you know, like Moxon, Nicholson and others, they, they describe this planing stop as they call it the bench hook. Yeah. It's a bench hook. And Nicholson said, There are toothed versions with metal teeth and there are non-toothed versions which is just a piece of wood that's mortised and goes up and down. And both of those things are called bench hooks. Hmm. Um, It's what you push the stock up against while you're planing.
1: Yep. Yeah, and uh, I mean it's it's so interesting just looking at Nicholson's drawings uh, and seeing like the bench is so clean because it has just the one place where the top is pierced and that's with the hook on the you know, the the front, I guess, proper right. You know, it's the, the left side of the bench if you're looking at it. Um, and otherwise, you know, it's just a plain work surface. And um, I remember reading, uh, like, just an, another example of extremely simple work holding for complicated woodworking is um, Toshio Odate writes about the traditional Japanese planing beam, um, which is where, you know, uh, um, Japanese... Uh, Carpenter would do most of the planing. Um, usually, they'd, they'd either have these things at clients' houses and leave them there, or they'd bring them around to different places where they're doing work. Um, and they would often use just a single nail or two nails as their planing stop.
2: I've seen that done with uh, people who were doing um, Viking woodworking. Or, you know, just a nail. Middle, 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 middle ages. Yeah, uh, yeah, just a nail on a board or two nails
1: on a board. And that's that's it. If you need it a little lower, you can. Tap it down, I guess, um, but yeah, what that offers is just an amazing amount of um, versatility, and you can always move your board, adjust things, turn things, and of course, there's there's a, a bit of a learning curve with that. Yeah, we've seen people trying to plane with just the bench hook, and and the board will spin off, and I've mm. definitely done that too.
0: And you know what's great about that? The reason it spins off is because you're using improper technique, mm. right. Um, and so it, what it does is it forces you to learn. I have, in order to, to make this thing not fly off the bench, I have
1: to do it correctly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) And then you learn to do it correctly. So when you lock it down, you can be as sloppy as you want with your technique because the board's not going anywhere. But then when it's just floating on that little toothed point, you have to aim your force directly at that point. And if you do, if you, if you can start planing the board from one end, aim it at the, at the, um planing stop or the bench hook and the board will stay put yep. because all the force is going right into the hook uh so that is and and i think the thing that i would say about that is you know like
0: um the, the bench hook focusing on the bench hook and not having hold fast just this picture we're kind of painting i would say what we're not saying is you can make do with this right like you could get by without yeah. buying a holdfast. what we're saying is I find it to be freeing to not even have that in the picture. It's right. great to have it if, mm. I do, um, right. if I'm in some given situation, like a rabbit, I want to hold it down. But I prefer to not use it. Um, the more free the work is, the more you know, the, the less constrained your board is, the quicker you can move and, and adjust and change things. Um, and even if you think about, if your body is a clamp, so if I have my work piece uh, pinned between my chest and the toothed uh, bench hook and i'm scribing with a, a marking gauge say think about all the variable pressure i can yeah i can mm-hmm. apply can by just leaning in i can tighten the vice my body yeah. vice and i can loosen it up and flip it upside down and tighten it again and i can grip it with my left hand as i'm using the marking gauge with my right i mean so this is like infinitely variable um and your body especially when you're using your body weight is way more than enough Holding pressure for all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so
1: Yeah,
2: might I might I offer one last tool epiphany? Yeah, it doesn't appear on our agenda. Yeah, go for it And this is also maybe a little bit controversial (gasps) We don't like controversy no Um, But the nib on nibbed saws.
0: Yes
2: (laughs) Do you have an no
0: I I know what the answer is we don't even have to talk about this.
2: Yes Yeah. Yeah I don't. I don't remember how I came to this epiphany. I must have been screwing around, but I remember being told that rather than to start your cut, you know, dragging the teeth back right. toward you, because that actually reverses the, the, the imprint of the teeth right. um, that you leave. So it's actually harder to push when you're pushing with the Western saw uh, against that um, kind of uh, that that uh, inset that you've made by dragging the teeth. If you have a nib saw, you can kinda of turn it upside down and with the nib, you use it to score in yeah. that that, that that starting
1: cut. So, so that th- there's that no... is the opinion of roughly one third of the so what are those called? The nibbonists? Uh, nib- is that nibbinists. what Roy Underhill calls yeah. them the nibbonists? So
0: so Nevin is a nibbonist. I am I know. a nibbonist.
2: And I I swear by it now. I can't <laughs> I can't not do it. It's just so easy. You just start it with the nib. You just start it with the nib and just you're off to the races.
0: Alright. That's the answer, folks. Yeah, yeah you know.
2: Well, actually. I'm going to get hate wait. mail now. Yeah. so, yeah. so
0: will it to you. So Nevin has one view and I have one view. And Mike, do you have a different view than me?
1: Well, I, so, yes. What, wait, the, what's the other one? There, so, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, there is the, um, uh, there's the, the person, the the agnostic Nevinist. Is sure. that right? Where yeah. you yeah. say, I don't know. I don't know. That's kind knows. of where I We,
0: we can't where know. I am. Okay. <laughs> Well, if you need to know what it really is, you can email me. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> nice.
2: We'll duke it out after We'll we duke it out. Yeah,
1: arm wrestle for it. Uh, <laughs> Sawing competition. There you, yeah, go. There you and go. And start with the nib or, or not. Uh, so if any of you listening have any tool epiphanies or opinions about saw nibs, uh, send don't, them along. Don't invite that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we'd love to hear most of them. I guarantee it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and and other than that, um, we just appreciate you listening, hanging in there. Uh, so thanks for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, again, if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below. And we will catch you next time. Thank you, Nevin, for being with us Thank today. Thank you
2: for having me today. It yeah. was a lot of fun.